0: Please open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. Now before we jump headfirst into um, today's text, I want to read to you an advertisement. And I want to see if you can guess where this is from. So, So here it is. Quote, you have the right to have what you want exactly when you want it. Because on the menu of life, you are today's special and tomorrow's. And the day after that, and well, you get the drift. Yes, that's right. We may be the king, but you, my friend, are the Almighty Ruler. End quote. All right now, where is that that advertisement from? Anyone guess? I heard it back there in the back. Yes, Burger King. Right, you you can decree whether or not you want cheese. Or no cheese on that slab of beef. You, you can command those peasants in the back to put fries with your meal. Yes, you have the power even to supersize those fries. Now, friends, if there ever, ever is an example of false advertising, <laughs> I think that very well might be the case. Yes, Burger King. But that ad pretty much just sums up the cultural climate we find ourselves in today. We live in the era of ultimate autonomy. The idol of our age is ultimate human autonomy. You don't want to embrace objective truth? No problem. The truth is whatever you want it to be. You can create alternative facts You are the Almighty Ruler. You don't want that baby growing inside of you? No problem. Call it an unwanted blob of tissue and kill it. You are the Almighty Ruler. You don't want to take care of grandpa? No problem. Save some money, pull the plug. You are the Almighty Ruler. You don't want to be a man? No problem. Identify as a woman? Heck, identify as a zebra. You are, after all, the almighty ruler. That's the flavor of the day. Oh, but we know that this isn't something new to our day. Man has been on a quest for absolute autonomy from the very beginning. Since that first rebellion in the garden, the heart of man has continued to scheme, but the hand of Of God has continued overruling. That's what today's text is all about, the heart of man in the hand of God. So please stand now as we read Daniel chapter 5. We're going to read the whole chapter and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. But Daniel chapter 5, we stand in the honor of reading God's infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient word that does not return void. Verse 1. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he... Will show you the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard that you that I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they cannot show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me the interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all the all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, Have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then... And Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. Four words to slay a king. Heavenly Father, you have given us many more words than that. And I pray that through them you would slay our pride. And cause us to repent of any ways that we've exalted ourselves, In any ways that we have profaned you in your name. So God, this morning I pray that you would grant us Unlike these foolish enchanters, grant us the ability to understand your word. Give me a mouth to speak it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we are traveling through the book of Daniel in this series called Between Two Kingdoms. And in the first four chapters, we've seen the story of Daniel and his companions and their interactions with one guy, one king, by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. But then we come to chapter 5, and there is a sudden and unexpected and quite abrupt change in the narrative. There is a new king in town, a guy by the name of Belshazzar. Now, way back at the end of chapter 4, we saw Nebuchadnezzar, in the very final verses of chapter 4 and verse 37, praising God. I think that Nebuchadnezzar was converted. He's on the throne, and he's praising God, but then we come to chapter 5, verse 1, and we have this other king, Belshazzar, throwing a drunken feast. And between verse 37 of chapter 4 and verse 1 of chapter 5, about 27 years have passed. So how do we get to this point? So let me just give you a little bit of a history lesson here to, to help us understand the context of what's happening in today's passage. Now. As I mentioned, Nebuchadnezzar reigned, and he had reigned for 43 years. He came into power in 605 B.C., and it was under his reign that Babylon reached its zenith, the the height of its power. And in 601 B.C., they began to siege Jerusalem, and in 597 B.C., Jerusalem fell. And you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar took with him some of the brightest and finest young men of the land to serve in his court back in Babylon, But Nebuchadnezzar eventually passed away in 562 B.C. and was succeeded by his son, a guy by the name of Amel Murdoch. He's also called Evil Murdoch in other places in the Scripture. But he only reigned for two years before he was assassinated by a guy named Neraglassar, who himself only ruled for a few years. And he was succeeded by a guy named Labashi Marduk, who only reigned a few months before being assassinated by a guy named Nabonidus. And Nabonidus is recorded in history as the last king of Babylon, Nabonidus. It was Nabonidus who was defeated by Cyrus' army and who disappeared. He he literally disappeared. No one knows what happened to him. So when we get to chapter 5, verse 1, who is this king, Belshazzar, that we are abruptly and without any explanation introduced to? Well, it's quite a fascinating story, actually. Matter of fact, you need to know that chapter 5 was Exhibit A for the skeptics and liberal scholars who claim that the Bible is filled with errors. Chapter 5 was the passage that would go to to say, See, look here, we know from historical data that Nabonidus was the last king, and, and what you have here is some guy named Belshazzar. This is just some sort of fictional character created so that, so that Daniel, or whoever the author of this book was, could sort of push his narrative along. And so it was claimed that that this is a clear evidence of errors in the Bible. And if there's historical errors, then there's got to be other errors. And so we can't trust the things like the miracles or the virginity, uh, the the virgin birth of Christ or or anything like that. And and so we can't know really anything even about salvation. Well, that was the argument up until 1859 when a British archaeologist by the name of John George Taylor found these terracotta cylinders that had all this writing on it. And the, the first cylinder he found was called the Cylinder of Nabonidus. And there, as they studied what was written on that cylinder, wouldn't you know it, a name jumped off that cylinder. and The name was Belshazzar. And it turns out that Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus. And more than that, he was the co-regent. He was the co-king of Babylon, And the reason was, was because Nabonidus spent most of his time outside of Babylon. You see, Nabonidus, when he came to the throne, wasn't a very popular king, mainly for religious reasons. And he spent the bulk of his reign, of his 17-year reign, he spent most of it out of the city, 500 miles away, in a desert oasis while his son ruled in his place. And his son's name was Belshazzar. And so this explains in the text here, this baffling phrase, where it says that Belshazzar, whoever could answer the riddle for him, would become the third ruler in the kingdom. For years before this archaeological find happened, for years um, people wondered why why this story? Why did why did he promise the third place in the kingdom? Because it was customary for kings, ancient kings, when they were giving someone some big promise like this, to promise them the second place in the kingdom, just like Pharaoh did with Joseph. And so it didn't make a whole lot of sense third place in the kingdom, until this archaeological discovery that showed there were two kings. There was Nabonidus and his son, Belshazzar. So the only position open was number three. But what's more is another thing that people continue to look at here and question and say, well, this has got to be an error, are the repeated places in this text today where Nebuchadnezzar is called Belshazzar's father. Now, the problem wasn't with the word father. It was very common and it is even still common today to refer to an ancestor several several steps back to be a father just like uh, Abraham is called the father of the Jewish people right and he's our father as well spiritually and and Jesus is the son of David so that's not the problem the problem is that when Nabonidus came to the throne he was not from the line the lineage of Nebuchadnezzar he actually killed the last son of Nebuchadnezzar he was of a priestly line and had no familial connection with Nebuchadnezzar whatsoever. So how is it that this Belshazzar, his son, is anyway related to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, wouldn't you know it? Once again, plenty of data began to come to light about Belshazzar. There's now over 37 different archaeological finds that confirm who Belshazzar is. And one of those things shows us that Nabonidus married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. Maybe perhaps he was trying to get a little bit more legitimacy to his reign. he married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, who was the mother of Belshazzar. So Belshazzar was indeed the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So all these things just stun me. And it blows me away, the, the, the truth and the accuracy of the Bible. Matter of fact, the Bible, the Scriptures, were way ahead of the archaeological and anthropological sciences. They had to catch up. The Bible already had data that the rest of the world didn't have. And so, friends, let me just tell you, don't get freaked out when skeptics come. Ah, well, there's this error and is this, this error. Listen, even if it's something you can't explain, don't worry. This is a reliable book. This is a divine book. And it may be, just like it was until 1859 before we had answers about Belshazzar, it may be that the answers are yet to come. The key is don't worry. Don't fear. You can have absolute confidence in this book right here. So, Belshazzar is the king. Now, enough of that. I want to jump into the actual text of this amazing book this morning. And what we find in today's text is that one of the most important and significant historical events of the ancient world, the fall of the great Babylonian empire, is mentioned in the book of Daniel almost as just an afterthought. History teaches us that a week prior to the events that we read of here in in Daniel chapter 5, that... The Babylonian army was was completely routed and defeated. That's when the Bonadus ran off into hiding. Meanwhile, Belshazzar stayed back in Babylon and threw a big old party. And we know that secular historians have shown us, the Greek historians that that chronicled the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire have shown us that Cyrus did indeed invade the city of Babylon while the Babylonians were in a party. And so what we have right here is the record of that party. And what we have right here in this party, we see the arrogance and the sinful pride of man on full display. So I have three simple observations from today's text, and here's the first thing that we see in Daniel 5. We see the foolish heart of a haughty man. The foolish heart of a haughty man. Verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. Now, why is he feasting? Is he in denial? I mean, there's been debate over this. Is he in denial? The Medes and the Persians are at the gate. Maybe he's just like, ah, everything's going to be okay. Let's just throw a party. Is he um, trying to improve morale? Come on, guys. We can do this. Let's throw a party. Let's get a little alcohol in our system, and maybe we'll think things are better. Or is he just kind of resigning, saying, hey, let's eat, drink, for today we die. Well, the Greek historians that I referred to earlier, Herodotus and Xenophon, tell us that that what was happening was that the Babylonians were simply celebrating one of their regular annual feasts. In other words, they were just going on with life as normal. This was already a scheduled party. It was already a scheduled feast. And thus, the very fact that this party is going on and that Belshazzar decides to go ahead and throw this party while the Medes and the Persians are at the gates demonstrates his arrogance and his pride. He was probably extremely confident in um, all the fortifications of Babylon. We know Demer shared with you a little bit earlier some of the the glories of this great city, Babylon. They had 40-foot walls, and some of the walls were 25 feet thick. Um, The the historians tell us that there was uh, up to 10 years' worth of provisions of food in the city. There was nothing to worry about. And and the the river Euphrates went right down the middle of the city providing water for all the aqueducts. And therefore, they had plenty of water. They had plenty of food. They had plenty of fortifications. And thus, they had plenty of confidence in these things. And all it was was prideful arrogance, foolishness. They decided, let's just let the party go on. And boy, was it a party. Verse 1 again. Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Now, notice. It doesn't say he drank wine with the thousands, but he drank in front of them. In other words, he is front and center. He's putting himself on display. Perhaps he was just showing, he wanted to show his drinking bravado, how much he could drink. But the point is, it's all about him. And the very fact that he brought in his wives and concubines, at, at the very least, they were brought in for entertainment But at the very worst, there's something much worse going on here in that there's other illicit activities that oftentimes accompany drinking parties going on here in Daniel chapter 5. And of course, as alcohol takes its effect, vanity and hubris shine all the more. Verse 2, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, and that's just a euphemism that he's getting drunk, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Just behold now Belshazzar's astonishing arrogance and brazenness. Nebuchadnezzar had carried off the furnishings of the temple, but not even he or any of the other kings who followed him Had the the chutzpah, the audacity, the gall to profane the vessels in this sort of way. Even if it was just out of superstition, no one would think about doing what Belshazzar is doing here. Everyone in Babylon knew who the Jews claimed their God to be. The Jews, unlike any of the other peoples, theirs wasn't a regional God. The Jews didn't claim that their God was the God of some created thing, like the God of the moon or the God of the ocean. Everyone in Babylon knew that the Jews claimed their God to be the only true God, the most high God, the creator of all things, the ruler of all things, the great I am, I am that I am, Yahweh. So Belshazzar is, by bringing in these vessels, he is profaning the name of Yahweh. And this is absolutely intentional. It's, it's not like they're having a party and they ran out of solo cups. And someone says, hey, Grab those vessels over there. That's not what's going on here. It says he commanded someone to go and get these. Someone had to go to the storehouse where where Nebuchadnezzar had accumulated all these treasures from around the world as he conquered the known world. It's kind of like the scene at the end of Indiana Jones, right? There's this storehouse with all these boxes and somewhere in there. So he's going in there. They're looking for the one that stamped temple uh, temple ornaments, temple um, utensils, and they find that box and they, they break it open and they bring it back so that Belshazzar can commit his act of profaning the name of God. This was absolutely intentional. What Belshazzar is doing is arrogantly and brazenly declaring his authority over and his autonomous freedom from Yahweh. And it wasn't that he was just drinking out of these vessels. He was actually using these vessels as a means of worshiping false gods. Verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Notice what blind fools they are. Daniel says that they drank wine and praised not the gods who were represented by images of gold and silver, bronze, etc., He says they were gods of gold and silver and bronze and so on. Meaning their essence, their being was nothing. Nothing more than material stuff. They were false, fake, impotent gods who could not communicate. But the one true God, the Holy One of Israel, the Most High God, was about to communicate and do it in quite a dramatic fashion. Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Now, some people think that this is actually the lampstand taken from the temple. I don't know if that's the case or not. But regardless, the point is, everyone could clearly see because it's right across from the lampstand what's going on. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. And his knees knocked together. Now the phrase, his limbs gave way, literally reads, the joints of his loins were loosed. Which is simply a euphemism for the fact that he lost continence. In other words, he soiled himself. Belshazzar had a little accident, kids. That's how terrified he was. So what does a a man blinded by his own arrogance and pride do in a situation like this? Oh, he calls for his blind guides. Verse 7, then the king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. These men collectively, in the whole book of Daniel, these men collectively represent the worthless wisdom of the world. Belshazzar exalts himself, profanes Yahweh's name, and instead of seeing his obvious sin and then in fear falling on his face in repentance, this worldly man who worships worthless idols turns to worthless worldly wisdom. And he tries to buy peace of mind with worthless worldly treasure. Continuing in verse 7, the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Now the fact that these clowns couldn't read the writing baffles some commentators because the writing was in Aramaic, and Aramaic was the common tongue of the day. So why couldn't they read it? Well, Aramaic, just like Hebrew, if you don't know this, doesn't have any vowels. And nor, when you're writing, do you put any spaces between the words. So it's just a bunch of consonants back to back to back. So it may be that they couldn't quite figure out which words were supposed to be words here. And they were having a hard time discerning that. Maybe that's what's going on. Or uh, maybe they did read it. They were able to understand the words, but they just didn't know what they meant. That might be the case. Or maybe they were... They were simply supernaturally blinded. and They could not see what God was doing, what God was writing. Regardless, the point is clear. Worldly wisdom cannot discern the thoughts of God. That's been a repeated theme in Daniel. I mean, we've seen this cast of characters before. These same guys. In chapters 1 through 4, they have already proven to be blind guides who do not know the mind of God. Who cannot know the mind of God. Oh, friends, the works... And the words of God are always baffling to fallen men. And mankind cannot understand the things of God without the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 teaches us this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And when the bankruptcy of these men's collective wisdom becomes evident, we read in verse 9... King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Friends, Belshazzar is a microcosm of humanity in general. For all men and women are by nature prideful and arrogant. Not all people are as prideful and arrogant as Belshazzar was in this particular instance. We are not born as depraved as we can be, but we are born depraved. And at the root of our depravity... Is pride. By nature, man hates God. By nature, man mocks God. By nature, when crisis hits, man refuses to turn to God and instead turns to the bankrupt wisdom of the world. By nature, man does not and cannot understand God's word unless God intervenes. And God does intervene. Though Belshazzar and his court of clowns cannot discern God's word, another man with a different heart Is about to enter the story, and thus the next thing I want us to see in today's text is simply this. The wise heart of a humble man. The wise heart of a humble man. Of course, that man is Daniel. Daniel is an old man at this point. As I was going through the the history earlier, maybe some of you guys were adding up some of the numbers. But Daniel, at this point in the story, should probably be in his late 70s or early 80s. And apparently, during the time between Nebuchadnezzar's reign until now, Daniel had been forgotten. But there was one person in the kingdom who had not forgotten him. Daniel 5, verse 10. The queen. Now, let me just say real quickly here, this is not referring to one of Belshazzar's wives. His wives and his concubines are there in the party doing who knows what. This person came from outside the party. This is the queen. This is Belshazzar's mom. This is Nabonidus' wife. This is Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. This is a woman who would have seen Daniel in her father's court and experienced his wisdom and seen the many ways that he had helped her father and the ways he had helped the kingdom. And so she comes in, like any good mom. She hears, she hears the ruckus going on. It says here, because of the words of the king and his lord. So she hears what's going on, and she comes into the banqueting hall, And she declares, O king, live forever. And I believe in these next words, there's a tone of chastisement. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king. And I think right there, she's kind of rubbing in the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was a truer and wiser king. Your father the king made him, Daniel, chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Now listen to the queen as she, as she just kind of continues to talk about the character of Daniel, and we see the heart of Daniel on display. Verse 12, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, not to be confused with this other guy who's the king right now, Okay, that was Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. She says, now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Notice that Daniel's character went before him. Daniel's heart, as we've seen already in chapters 1 through 4, was one of humility. He never sought praise. He simply trusted God, and God exalted him. He lived with impeccable character and integrity, so that even those who were not followers of Yahweh... Had great respect for him. Notice that the queen shows respect to him by using his Jewish name instead of the name that her father had given to him. Daniel is an example in this whole book of how one glorifies God while in exile. He took God's prophetic words to Jeremiah to heart in Jeremiah 29:7 Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And as we saw back in chapter 4, Daniel cared for Nebuchadnezzar. He was worried about Nebuchadnezzar. He cared for the place that God had placed him. And we need to learn from this. We can learn from Daniel. We are, co- we are exiles as well in the new covenant sense. We are strangers in this world. And although I find problems with certain things, certain types of expressions of patriotism and stuff like that, friends... Though this country has a lot of problems, we should still seek the welfare of where we are placed. We should seek the welfare of our communities. We should seek the welfare of our neighborhoods. We should seek the welfare of our nation. We can learn a lot from Daniel. I think perhaps the Apostle Peter had Daniel in mind when he wrote these words to the church, 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as what? Sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And listen to this verse. This is the one I want you to focus on in this particular case. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works, your good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Oh, friends, do we live in such a way that those who know us, even if they're not believers, want to call us first? When crisis hits, do we live in that sort of way? Do we live in such a way that people, even though they can't explain it, see the Spirit of God at work in us? Or are we indistinct from the world around us? Bobby shared a a question with me this week, a question that someone asked him. And he said it convicted him and it convicted me as well. So let me just put this question before you guys. Here it is. And I hope I got it right, but it was something like this. If you were to move today, would anyone in your neighborhood mourn your loss? Let that sit on you for a little bit. If you were to move today, would anyone in your neighborhood, would anyone at your work mourn your loss? You see, Daniel's absence was felt. The queen mourned the fact that he was not called in. So she says, call this man in. But Belshazzar himself, he's still full of pride. He's still full of arrogance. His very first words to Daniel, that they are, they are designed by him to put Daniel in his place. Verse 13. You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. He reminds Daniel that he's just a, a notch, just a very little notch above a slave. And then he goes on to verse 14. I have heard of you that the spirits of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they cannot show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can, read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. You shall be clothed with the purple and have a chain of gold Around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And so now it's time for Daniel to speak for the first time in today's text, for Daniel to speak and introduce this foolish pretender of a king to the holy God, to the King of kings. And so the last thing we'll see this morning is the sovereign hand of a holy God. We've seen the foolish heart of a haughty man, the wise heart of a humble man, and now the sovereign hand of the holy god if you haven't picked it up by now the major theme of the book of daniel is the sovereignty of god over the affairs of all men and the absolute supremacy of god's kingdom over the kingdoms of men and we see it again today it's like deja vu all over again daniel skips the pleasantries this time he puts to rest any idea he's not going to even entertain the idea that yahweh or yahweh's servant can be bought So he says in verse 17, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And now, before Daniel gives the interpretation, this 80-year-old man launches into a fiery sermon. He has no fear. And as we read this, I want you to listen to the emphasis on God's sovereign hand. So maybe underline in your Bible where you see sovereignty, 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 sovereignty. Verse 18, here we go. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised, and whom he would, he humbled. Let me just pause right there. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar's power, and he was a powerful man, the most powerful man in the world before he died. Nebuchadnezzar's power, which from man's vantage point seemed absolute, was actually a borrowed power. It was a borrowed power. Verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. And he was driven from among the children of mankind. And his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Verse 22. And you his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Listen to this. Though you knew all of this. This is a key verse in this whole text. Belshazzar is not some innocent offender. He knew all of this. He knew about his grandfather's humbling. He knew what God had done. He knew enough. And yet, verse 23, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house Have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, or hear, or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Daniel has some guts. This king has brought him in. Daniel said, yeah, I know the interpretation, but tell you what, i got a little sermon for you first. And lays this out there. He had to confront Belshazzar's willful, open, open rebellion against God. And against this, and again, we see here in this, we see a microcosm of the whole human condition. Friends, let me remind you of Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And let me jump down to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. There are no innocent offenders. There are no ignorant sinners. There are no naive lawbreakers for what can be known about God is plain to all. No one has an excuse. Belshazzar knew enough. He knew enough to turn to the one true God that he had foolishly presumed that he could just ignore God. He presumed that he could just live however he wanted. He presumed that he had time. Perhaps he presumed that since God was so patient with his granddad over and over and over again, he'll do the same with me. So let me show off a little bit and take Yahweh's stuff and show these people how amazing I am, that I am the almighty ruler. Romans 2, four. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Oh, unbeliever, this morning hear this word. Wrath is being stored up and though God was patient with Nebuchadnezzar and gave him chance after chance to finally see the truth and repent, this same God, very same God, had no such patience with Belshazzar. Romans eleven twelve says, Note the kindness and severity of God. In Daniel, we see both sovereign grace and sovereign justice on display. And for Belshazzar... The just and irrevocable sentence of heaven's court was about to come down. Verse 24. Daniel's still speaking here. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Now, Mene, Tekel, and Parson were all weights used for monetary transactions. The word Mene is elsewhere called in the scriptures Amina. In its root verbal form means to number. The word tekel, elsewhere called in the scriptures a shekel, in its root verbal form means to weigh. And the word parson simply means half. Usually it referred to half a shekel. And in its root verbal form it means to divide. So basically what's being said here is numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And now Daniel is going to reveal the symbolic meaning of these words, verse 26. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And with this last one, Daniel took the singular um, word that parson and used the plural instead, Paris, because it's a play on words. Paris is very similar to the word for Persians. So there it is. Time is up. Proverbs 16:18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before the fall. Now many commentators wonder why after this fiery sermon and interpretation that Daniel gave Belshazzar, why after that, which was a negative sermon for him, he still gave Daniel the rewards. He still I mean, you might be expecting instead of a gold chain around Daniel's neck it would have been a noose. But Daniel gets the rewards at the end. Some people think, well, Belshazzar, he's just trying to save face for all of, his, all of his people that are there watching. He's just trying to save face so that he keeps his word. Other people think that maybe he was just so distraught that he's just numb. And he just says, give it to him. It doesn't really matter. The point is, God exalted the humble man and brought down the proud man. God arranged for Daniel to still get the rewards. Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. And destruction has certainly come for Belshazzar and for Babylon. You see, history tells us that Cyrus and his army sat outside those walls, and while the Babylonians were partying, all the elites of the kingdom were there at the party. They began to divert the river Euphrates. And when they diverted the river Euphrates, it caused the water levels to come down below the grates, the grates where the the river fed the aqueducts. And they were able to climb underneath those grates and enter this amazingly fortified city with absolutely no battle whatsoever. They came underneath the gates, and historians tell us they went straight to the palace where Belshazzar was drunk and partying. And we read in verse 30, That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And there, in those two little sentences, the Bible sums up one of the most amazing moments in world history. The fall of the Babylonian Empire. But what is monumental to man is but a blip on God's radar screen of redemptive history. God rules the rulers. God writes the history. Notice it says that Darius the Mede, and we'll discuss who that is next week. Darius the Mede received the kingdom. It was given to him by the God who Daniel said back in chapter 2, verse 21, removes kings and sets up kings. So what do we do with this amazing passage? I love these great stories in the first few chapters of Daniel. What do we do with this? How do we apply this? What does this have anything to do with our contemporary setting? So I want to just conclude a little bit here with hopefully some words of application. First for believers in here. And then secondly for unbelievers. First of all for the believer. Friends, don't sweat history. God is in control and he continues to establish his kingdom. Christians should be the most confident and calm people in the midst of geopolitical uncertainty and turmoil. It was so frustrating for me to watch the last election and then the things after the last election, to see Christians wringing their hands. Daniel is not wringing his hands when he walks into the court. He knows who his God is. There was only one person wringing his hands. It was the pagan king who was wringing his hands. Christians, we should be confident and calm in the midst of uncertainty. You see, the fall of Babylon was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 13 and 14 and in 21, and even in Jeremiah chapter 51. And the rise of Cyrus was prophesied hundreds of years before it happened in Isaiah 44 and 45. So that's the first thing this morning. Don't sweat history. But secondly, believer, don't presume upon God's grace. What do I mean? Even though you are saved, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are saved, your life is still going to be weighed. You understand that, right? You're still going to have to give an account of your deeds. And though you are, if you've truly placed your faith in Christ, you are justified, you will still be held accountable for how you handled your life. Don't presume upon God's grace. Don't presume you've got another year. Don't presume you have another minute. Remember the passage that Dima read earlier for us from Luke chapter 12. Don't be caught building bigger barns when the Lord calls for your soul. Don't be the one in 1 Corinthians 3 whose works are burned up, though he is saved as through fire. Listen to our Lord's severe words for the one who buried his talents in Matthew chapter 24. And it's severe words for those in Matthew 25 who were not looking for and expecting the return of the master. Don't presume you have another second. Don't sit around. Sitting on your time and sitting on your treasure and sitting on your talents. Don't wait for the next raise before you begin to give generously. Don't wait for the next calm moment in your life before you'll begin to serve. Don't wait for the next step in your maturity before you invest in that brother and sister in Christ. It is presumption to act in such a way. James, speaking not to unbelievers but believers, says this in James 4.13. Come now you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The heart of living a presumptive life is pride it's arrogance don't underestimate your pride that's my third point this morning don't sweat history don't presume upon the grace of God and don't underestimate pride we must continue to fight this root of all sins pride actually leads us as I said earlier to have that sort of presumptive arrogance that we must guard against It negatively influences us to become friendly with the world, to become in love with the world instead of being distinct positive influences in the world. Continuing with James, actually we're going to jump earlier in James chapter 4, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is for no purpose that the Scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? Remember, James is speaking to believers here. But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Listen to this. Humble yourself before God, and he will exalt you. And now for the unbeliever here this morning. You really need to beware of waiting of that same sin of presumption. Don't presume upon a holy God. Just because he may seem slow to act in your timing. Just because he has shown patience with another person. Don't presume that you have all the time in the world... Oh, friend, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God is holding the scales of justice. And this very hour, your soul may be required of you. And without Christ, you will be weighed and found wanting. You look at me and you say, how do you know I'll be weighed and found wanting? I say that because all men are weighed and found wanting. The scales of God's justice require perfection, and none is righteous, no, not one. So your only hope, the hope that many in here, hopefully all in here, have already taken hold of, is a man. You see, there's a man in the kingdom who can help you, but his name is not Daniel. He is the one Daniel points to. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus, the God-man, lived a perfect life in our place, thus satisfying God's righteous requirements. And Jesus, the God-man, took our punishment on the cross, the wrath of a holy God, thus satisfying God's perfect justice. The scales were balanced by the work of Jesus Christ alone, so that if God does require your soul this very day, if and only if you are found in Christ, will you be saved. So repent of your sin. Put your hope in Christ alone because, friend, this may be a news flash to you, you are not the almighty ruler. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a great passage of Scripture like this one that shows us your sovereign rule and shows us how much you hate arrogant pride. But Father, the temptation for all of us in here this morning is to look at this Bible story, maybe even just call it sort of a kid's story, and think that it has nothing to do with us. Lord, this story was written for us, not so we can know about the history of Babylon, but so that we can know about the nature of man before a holy God. So, Father, I pray that you would do your convicting work, that you would send your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, convict us of our sin, our presumption. Lord, help us to be people who live in such a way with that humble heart that Daniel had, to live in such a way that we make a difference in the kingdom. that people know there is something strange, something different about that guy or that gal. Oh, Father, I pray for the youth in the room here. We all know, all of us who have gone through those years know <laughs> there is a spirit of invincibility that settles upon the heart of every teenager. And that invincibility is nothing more than that presumption that we spoke of earlier. Lord, I pray that no young person in here would presume they have another moment to live, but instead would say, Father, use me however you want. There are some older people in this room that through tears can tell these young people, don't waste 30 years of your life. So God, I pray that you would be with us as we sing this final song, stir up our hearts, Stir up our hearts by who you are. You are the holy God. You are the holy one of Israel. You are I am that I am. Let us know who you are, and it'll change the way we behave. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.